You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, which is an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, we're just a little over halfway. And so what I want to do is go ahead and just read our text, Mark 9, um, verses 42 through chapter 10, verse 16. So we're going to cross over a chapter divide today. I'm just going to read it and pray, and then we'll jump in, okay? So if you've got, there's Bibles that are around. You can find uh, Mark chapter 9. We've also got these little journals. You also probably have phones that have Bibles on them as well, but it would be great. It'll be on the screen as well. So let me go ahead and read our text today, pray, and then we'll get started. Mark 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, he, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, inspiring uh, the gospel writer to write this down. Um, and preserving it all these years, that we might read it in our own language. God, we pray that we would not take for granted the fact that we have God's Word in our own language. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in safety and be able to hear your Word preached and to consider what it is that you are calling us to as disciples of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. Help us to not waste this opportunity to hear and respond to your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just a what chapter before Mark writes this. He writes this of Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so really from, if, if you read the first eight chapters of the book, the dominating question of the first eight chapters of the book is, who is this man? 
And throughout, we get all of these miracles of Jesus. He drives out demons. He raises people from the dead. He calms nature. And we, get, we, get, we come to the conclusion that he's the son of God. Paul, and when Jesus asks the disciples in chapter 8, who do the people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And that's the right answer. Which then turns the book into the second half to where we then, what did this Christ come to do? What kind of kingdom is he setting up? And so Jesus then says those very shocking words, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A shocking statement. So the second half of the book is really about how Jesus is destined not for a throne, but for a cross. And anyone who follows him must follow him in a cross-shaped life, a cross-shaped discipleship. So really, what you have in this part of the book is answering the question, not who is this man, but what does it mean to follow him? Where is he going, which is to a cross, and what does it mean to follow him, to follow him with a cross? So I want to take this big section of scripture. We could spend a lot of time, we could do a whole sermon series on, um, on each of these three sections of the text, but I want us to see it in the larger scope of what the book is doing. And so we're, we're continuing to think about what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. And what we're seeing is that the disciples do not get it, right? They're going to continue to trip over the language of Jesus' um, intention to go to the cross and to die. They're also going to be fighting against the fact that they need to be humble. They need to be like little children. They need to take up their own cross and follow him. Um, if you remember back in chapter 8, there was the healing of a blind man in two stages, right? He sees a little bit at first. And then Jesus touches him again, and then he sees more clearly. And that's really a, a parable between that and the healing of a blind man at the ap, at end of chapter 10, is that this whole section is about spiritual sight. They're getting who Jesus is. They don't understand yet what, what it means to follow him, to take up their cross and follow him. So that's where we're at right here. And so we get, I think, three. I think we put these three together. We could say a whole lot more about each of these sections, but we could put these three together around the theme of spiritual sight or what it means to follow Jesus. And the first is this. We take up our cross and follow Jesus by first dealing with causes of sin. Do amputation or condemnation is the choice before us. When it comes to the causes of sin, we can either amputate them and enter life, we can deal with our sin, or we can face condemnation if we don't deal with our sin. And here's what he says in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a horrifying thought, a millstone. I think there's a picture on the next page here, if you want to go one slide over there, Ben. A millstone right there. I don't know if you can tell by the, but that thing's probably this tall, pulled by a donkey. Yeah, maybe it's this tall in threshing out grain. So if you can just imagine, he's saying, hey, it is better. It is better. Like if you had to choose between the punishment that God would give you and having one of those wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea, you would choose that. That's what he's saying. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell and to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus is just ridiculously intense here. about You need to realize how serious sin is. Sin is worthy of hell and you want to avoid hell. Trust me, is what he's saying. What we see here is that Jesus takes sin and its causes very seriously and so should we. In verse, two, in verse 42, like we said, any person causing one of these little ones to sin 
uh, through either sinful conduct, their bad example, their sinful lifestyle is pulling people away from Jesus, vulnerable people away from Jesus, or through their erroneous teaching. They're teaching false things about the gospel, about God. We talked about Arianism just a few minutes ago, that this false view of who God and Jesus is was leading people astray, and God will see that, God will punish that, and the punishment will be worse than being thrown into the sea with a large rock around your neck. So there's a couple of ways that someone can, someone can lead someone astray, through their sinful behavior in the name of Christ or through their erroneous teaching about Christ. Who are these little ones that he's talking about? Some have thought that maybe it's children. That could be the case. But in the context, Jesus has likened little ones to the disciples. Remember, he put a child in their midst and said, however people treat you, that's how I will treat them. We're going to have little ones come up again. That He's using in this section... Uh, the idea of little children being similar to his disciples and the disposition that disciples have. What's interesting, too, is that if you think just in verse 38 of chapter 9, the disciples, John in particular, was really proud because someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John said, we went to stop him because he doesn't follow us. And Jesus was like, what are you doing? He's trying to obey me. He's doing good things. He's doing ministry in my name and you're trying to stop them. And then Jesus follows it up with this statement here that if you cause one of these little ones to sin and to, who believe in me to sin, it's, like, it's almost like the disciples are in danger of doing that themselves. Someone else is following Jesus, but he's not like in the inner circle. So they're trying to stop him. And Jesus gives this warning of going, hey, if you cause someone who believes in me to stumble, you would be under my judgment. So be careful. Be careful how you lead other Christians to live and to believe because God is watching. God will avenge. What is the consequence? God will avenge. And if you had the choice between facing God's vengeance for leading someone astray or a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea, you would choose millstone. That's just how serious God takes leading other people astray through either our conduct or through our teaching and he warns his disciples very strongly on that because they're in danger in their pride of doing that very thing. And then he goes on to say, hey, actually, your biggest issue, your biggest issue is sin. That is why Christ came. That's why he has to die and rise again is because your biggest issue is not the Roman government out there. Your biggest issue is the sin in your own heart that expresses itself in these ways. And if you don't deal with that sin, undealt with sin will be punished by God. It will either be punished on the cross of Christ or on or by yourself in hell. And so he says, amputate the hand or the foot or the eye, whatever your sinful desire uses and latches onto to draw you into sinning against God, you need to deal with. You need to cut that off. You need to amputate. You need to deal seriously with sin because the consequences of sin are so severe. Uh, any of you familiar with the movie 127 Hours? It's um, based on the story of a man named Aaron Ralston who in 2003... Uh, was making a solo descent in Utah. He dislodged a boulder and it pinned his right wrist to the side of the canyon wall. And after five days of being pinned there, he had to break his own forearm, amputate it with a dull pocket knife to break free. And then he had to make his way through the rest of the canyon, rappel down a 65-foot drop, one, one armed, and hike seven miles to safety. He was in a situation where it was either his arm or his life. Amputate, or die. And he reached a position where he had to do the desperate thing. And there he is right there in all of his splendor. You can actually still see like the blood is still staining the rock. And I've, I looked on the internet. You can Google it if you want to. But there's still remnants of the decision that he had to make. 
His arm or his life. That was what was before him. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. You can have your sin or you can have hell. Or you can, have, you can, have, you can get rid of sin or you can... What am I trying to say? <laughs> you can amputate or, you can, or you'll receive condemnation. There's a literal call. Is this a literal call to amputation? Well, no, because it's not actually your hand that causes you to sin. It's just the instrument. It's not, just your, it's not your eye that causes you to sin. It's not your foot that causes you to sin. That is the agent by which your sin is carried out. What's the real issue is, is that sin is in the heart. So this is not an actual call to amputate literal body parts, but it is a call to deal with whatever it is that your sin latches onto. Amputate that. Kill it. Take it out. Romans tells us, make no provision for the flesh. Do not give your sinful desire anything to latch onto. Deal seriously with sin because God will. God will deal seriously with sin. The principle here is to be ruthless at killing sin because the stakes are so very high. The consequence here is hell. Jesus taught on hell. The literal word for hell here is Gehenna. This is the Valley of Hinnom right next to Jerusalem. And in the Valley of Hinnom, there used to be back historically in the days of Josiah the king, uh, before he was there, there was, a, um, there was infant sacrifices. Um, people began to, God's people began to incorporate Canaanite practices of sacrificing their own children on altars, burning them alive, burning them to death, sacrificing them in order that the gods might make the land more prosperous. And this was a terrible pagan practice that they were killing in this valley. And so Josiah was a righteous king, and he came and he obliterated that. And as a, as a way of renouncing that evil worship of false gods, he made the place the Jerusalem trash heap. And so Gehenna, since then, since the days of Josiah in the Old Testament, is a trash heap. And so there is fire burning constantly as people take all of the things that are contaminated, all the things, all the waste uh, and they would throw it into there, and the fire never stops, and the worms never stop eating. And it's just this place of destruction. And what he's saying is that there is a place where God, in a sense, will take anything that is tainted, stained, distorted, rotten by sin, and it will be put in the trash heap called hell. It will be put in the incinerator called hell. It will be put into the trash heap, into Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, the place of ancient infant sacrifice which is now a trash heap. And so it's this, visceral, it's this visceral experience of going, you will go there if you do not deal with your sin. That's how seriously he's dealing with this. And you have a choice. You can have your sin or you can have life, but you can't have both. Praise God for a dismembered life over a whole death in hell, is what he's saying. Better. Better to go without something in this life Better to have your freedoms restricted, better to have something taken away from you than to end up under the judgment of God for eternity. Jesus is not pulling any punches here. To follow him, to take up our cross and follow him is to deal with the causes of sin, to either amputate our sin in repentance and faith or condemnation thrown in the, into the eternal Gehenna. So we see very strongly Jesus teaches that eternal hell is the literal destiny of those who do not kill their sin. That is what Jesus teaches here. It is what he wants his disciples to know. So did Jesus believe in hell? Well, yeah, he does. He speaks more about hell than any other writer in the Bible. Did you know that? We tend to think of Jesus as very soft and loving and he just gives people hugs and carries around lambs or something. 
And you go, no, he teaches very strong truths that God is holy, relentlessly holy, and he sees the sin that is done by you and to you, and he will condemn it in no uncertain terms. Jesus lays out a binary here. There's the kingdom of God versus hell. There are two destinies for every single human being. Every person is tainted by sin, and unless their sin is dealt with severely, they will end up in either hell or the kingdom of God based on what they do. Choose sin or Jesus to determine which is the appropriate destination for you. Did Jesus believe that hell was literal, eternal, and conscious torment? I think he does. Because based on what it is, we would choose a millstone around our neck over what is coming, right? He's clearly being metaphorical about fire and worm and all that kind of stuff. That seems to be metaphor, but not because hell is any less worse than that, but that hell is actually literally worse than that. (laughs) Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which speaks to the eternal nature of hell. It's not just go there for a while and then be eliminated. It's like, no, because we're made in the image of God, we exist for eternity. Are there degrees of hell? I think so. Because he says that it would be worse for someone. There's, there's a worse punishment for those that lead others astray. So I think there are degrees of hell here. Jonathan Edwards speaks to this. Uh, he wrote the most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So if you want to just sort of have the realities of hell become more viscerally <laughs> overwhelming, read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he also writes another, uh, he also writes another book about glory. And he says this. He says that suffering for the human being, when we faithfully suffer for God... It's almost, like, it's almost like we have our experience of glory expanded. Uh, it's almost like we're a container, and eternity, an eternity with, of life with God is like that container being thrown into the ocean. The ocean is the joy of God's presence. And so every vessel that spends eternity with God will be filled to their capacity with joy in God. It will be great. God will fill all of us. But because of our faithful suffering, perhaps some of us will... Uh, some people will, because of their faithful suffering, because of their martyrdom, because of whatever it is that they've, they've suffered through life, maybe they will be a little bit bigger vessel in order to enjoy God even more. Does that make sense? Like some, maybe, will just have a thimble full, but they will be full. They will have as much joy as they can handle in God. But because of the sufferings that we have endured, perhaps there will be a greater capacity to enjoy God's glory in eternity. Well, you can flip that around and go, perhaps the same is in relation to hell. Is that perhaps those, uh, all who reject Christ and won't deal with their sin, uh, will experience hell. But perhaps there's more severe experiences of hell for those who led others astray. For those who knew the truth and rejected it. For those who willfully pursued certain acts of evil in such a way that perhaps... Hell is entirely appropriate for the things that we have done, and it is eternal and unrelenting. But perhaps there is greater judgment, as Jesus often talks about, for, the, for particular kinds of sins. So I do think that there is, I think there is the possibility that there are not just degrees that we can increase our experience and love of God in heaven, that we can be stretched uh, in terms of experiencing more of God's glory for eternity, so also we might experience more of God's wrath based on how we live here. Does that make sense? It's an interesting thought to think about, but something I think Jesus teaches here. Jesus also warns about hell because he does not want people to go there. What's the point of Jesus telling them about hell? Because he wants, to, he wants them to not go there. 
I would rather you cut off your hand. I would rather you turn. I would rather you repent of your sin. I am warning you because I love you. So we often think that, you know, a fire and brimstone, speaking of hell and the judgment that's coming, that that's not a loving thing to do. Well, what would be more loving? Like if the bridge is out and you're driving towards the bridge, I should get out of my car and go, stop, you'll die, right? And if we're all headed towards an eternity apart from Christ, it is only the most loving thing in the world for Christ to say, this is the direction you're going if you don't deal with your sin. Your sin will be judged, either in Christ on the cross or by yourself in hell. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone. Everyone needs some sort of purification. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourself and go at peace with one another. So why? This is weird. Jesus sort of shifts the metaphor here to salt now. We get the fire, the connection to hell. Why salt? Seems to use salt in sort of an interesting way here. It seems to go back to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where salt was used to help purify the sacrifices. And salt was one of those things that it would be the only thing left after you'd burnt the sacrifice. The salt would somehow survive through the fire. Ezekiel chapter 16 and uh, and chapter 43 also speak of salt being used to purify the sacrifice and being the one thing that sort of remains after After the sacrifice is over, it's just the salt showing that the sacrifice was completely consumed. I think what what he's getting at here is that everyone will experience some level of painful purification. The take up your cross and follow me. There's parts of you that have to die, have to be addressed, have to be dealt with, have to be salted, so to speak. And so we ought to embrace the purification of suffering in this life, the discipline of the Lord right now, the unpleasant experiences that we experience in life as God's salt, his purification, in order to save us from the unquenchable fire that's coming. So he's saying, be salt, have salt, receive the Lord's discipline now and respond well to it. Repent of your sin while the consequences are still relatively low, right? Learn your lesson now so that you don't face eternal judgment then and help one another do it. Have salt among yourselves. Be a church where you're easily corrected that suffers together. Have salt among yourself so that you might have peace with one another and so that you might together share an encouragement and correction so that no one faces the unquenchable fire. Does that make sense? So what does it mean to take up our cross? It means we deal with the causes of sin. We amputate or we experience condemnation. So it's important for each of us to think about what, what is the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind of a sin issue, something that you know is not right before the Lord that you need to put to death you need to deal with in some way. Do it. And look to your brothers and sisters to help be that healthy salt to help you work through those things. Secondly, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we take up our cross by embracing the purpose of marriage. Is it permanent or is it provisional? Sort of the question that's brought to Jesus. So look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So here we move from Jesus' teaching to now he's got a trap set for him. Look at verse 1, it says, He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now this is a really clever test, because if you, if you follow the geography, Jesus is now in the area that's very close to where John the Baptist got his head cut off. And John the Baptist got his head cut off for doing what? Calling out Herod Antipas on his immoral marriage. 
Because Herod Antipas had married his brother's wife. She unlawfully divorced her first husband, married his brother, and now they have this thing. And John the Baptist was like, that is against the law. You can't do that. So they throw him in jail, and eventually he gets his head taken off. So now this is a really clever trap because the Pharisees are like, well, if we could get Jesus to go on the record about marriage and divorce, maybe he would get his head taken off. Or maybe we could divide his following. This is a very clever test because now they're in Herod Antipas territory. And man, if they could just get him to say the wrong thing, it'll either divide his following, put him at odds with the law, or put him at odds with Herod, and Herod is already taken out. Jesus' cousin. So this is a very clever, well-timed trap for Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, here's what Jesus says. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Let's go to the Bible. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they immediately, instead of going to the intention of marriage, which is where Jesus is going to take them, they go to the escape clause. How do you get out of a marriage, right? Now, there's two schools of thought at the time. There was two really prominent rabbis. These guys loomed over everything. Um, These two schools of thought on how you interpret the Old Testament here. And there was a bitter debate, two very strong schools of thought here, between the Hillel, Rabbi Hillel's school of thought, and Shammai. Hillel, in his school of thought, the rabbis that followed him, had a very permissive understanding of when you could divorce someone according to Deuteronomy chapter 24. In fact, actually, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, We just need to look at verse 1. It actually, the whole law goes down to verse 5. But we'll just look at verse 1 because this is where the debate is. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. A Jewish person wants to, what is the parameters for dissolving a marriage? It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, this is the word of debate, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So the Hillel school, they they argued uh, that indecency, which is a very broad term, indecency could mean anything that the man finds undesirable about his wife at any time. That that would be grounds for dissolving the marriage. Uh, so, for example, if she burnt his lunch, that would be grounds for divorcing her, according to the Mosaic Law. This is according to the Hillel School. Or, if he found someone who was more attractive, some indecency. She doesn't measure up to the beauty of this other woman. Something, there's some other desirable character quality in this other woman. And so, I actually almost have a legal obligation, because I'm such a righteous man, to do that. That if I find some indecency in my wife, the Hillel school almost goes so far as to say I have the obligation to divorce her because she, out of, for righteousness sake. So that's the Hillel school. The Shammai school was very strict, only sexual infidelity. The indecency that's being interpreted here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is only when there's marital infidelity, a sexual infidelity um, committed there. So that's the trap Jesus has set, and he set in this very clever trap of going, which school of the rabbis do you follow, the strict or the loose one? And just know Herod Antipas is right there, (laughs) right? And he has a track record of killing people who call out his marriage, right? And here's what we find, is that Jesus believes that marriage is a divinely sealed covenant union between one man and one woman for life. Because here's what it says. Because when he asked them, what did Moses command you? They went to this. They go, well... Moses said we can divorce our wives. 
Um, and as long as we do the right paperwork, we can send her away. As long as we do the paperwork, it doesn't really matter. We can, we can kind of put anything under the category of indecency, and then we almost have an obligation to obey the law by divorcing. But Jesus believes that marriage is a divinely sealed covenant between, union between one man and one woman. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Deuteronomy 24, he's telling them, was not meant to be your guiding principle. It was meant to be, hey, when the marriage gets really, really bad, and it's actually dangerous for one of the parties, the covenant is broken, there's a way for the sake of the image bearer, for the sake of the wife so she doesn't get abused. There's an escape clause to dissolve an already broken marriage in order for the sake of protecting image bearers, right? Because of your hardness of heart. Because God knew that because of the sinful, because of sinful disposition of your own heart, your own selfishness, you would take marriage and you would make it a very dehumanizing thing. And so when this indecency happens, there is a way for the divorce to happen. But here's what he says, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, that was never God's intention, was for you to think about all the ways you could get out of a marriage. That's provided because sometimes people can be so evil that actually you have to, to in order to save the person, the divorce needs to happen. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You need to go further back into Moses, right? From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery with her, and, and she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Mosaic provision was not a blessing of divorce. It's never a positive thing when a divorce happens. Jesus points back further into Moses for the more fundamental purpose of marriage. In the pre-law, pre-fall creation of marriage, there's an intention that God would be, that it would be a man and a woman for life. That when you ask Jesus about marriage, he goes back to the created order. And Jesus died and rose again in order that we might be able to return to the created order. The divorce is the provision in Deuteronomy chapter 24 does not undermine God's intention for marriage. In fact, it only strengthens it and only makes it more grievous when it happens. And I think Jesus does affirm that sometimes divorce is necessary in a fallen world, but never desirable. Because he said, remember in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This was a sad reality in a fallen world, that sometimes a marriage is so broken and so dehumanizing and so dangerous that there needs to be a way for the sake of image bearers to get out of it. In Matthew 19.9, Matthew's account of this, he said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he affirms really sort of the Shammai school, the stricter, that you can't just divorce for any reason, but sometimes in a fallen world, divorce is necessary because the covenant has been so terribly broken and weaponized in a way that would very much injure these women who would have no recourse they don't have the social standing that men do. There needs to be a provision for the sake of these people. One commentator says this, the legal provision of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 was not intended as a statement about God's purpose for marriage, but as a regrettable but necessary means of limiting the damage when that purpose has already been abandoned. 
It is a way to deal with human hard-heartedness, not a pointer to the way that things ought to be. The marriage ethics of the kingdom of God must be based not on the concession to human failure, but on the pattern that God set out in the original creation of man and woman. Another commentator said, God did not sanction divorce. It is never good, but it is sometimes necessary because of the human fallenness and for preventing even greater harm. The Mosaic provision was to protect image bearers from abuse. Covenant already broken by idolatry or adultery. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to give another provision. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, If an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. He has called you to peace. So when the covenant is broken by abandonment, by an unbeliever, broken by adultery, perhaps there are other situations, I think, that abuse could fall under this category as well. Of, of, a, of a kind of abandonment, a kind of breaking of covenant to where actually the image bearer themselves needs to be removed in order to protect them. What we'll see later in Mark chapter 12 is that Jesus will speak about the temporariness of marriage, but the permanence of the image bearer. All human marriages will eventually dissolve, but image bearers last forever. The well-being of the image bearer sometimes takes precedence over the saving of the marriage. Because like he says in Mark 12, 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus is teaching us that we should set our sights and understandings of marriage on Genesis 1 and 2, knowing that in a fallen world, Deuteronomy 24 is sometimes required. It's always grievous. It's never desirable. It's always a result of sin somewhere. Is divorce always a sin? Not always, but it is always the result of some sort of sin. It's a brokenness in God's intention there. We know that Joseph was going to divorce Mary quietly, partially because he was a righteous man, right? He's not condemned. He's actually somewhat commended because he was going to do it quietly. And even God himself is a divorcee. In Jeremiah 3.8, he saw that all of the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, he sent her away with a decree of divorce. Obviously, that's metaphorical, but this sense of, this sense of balance between the absolute sanctity of marriage and the reality of human sin that needs to protect image bearers. And that can be very challenging. That can be a very challenging thing to hold together. And some of you have been through yourselves or people that you know that have gone through very painful divorces and it takes a lot of wisdom and care. And divorce and marriages should never be quickly thrown away. They should be preserved at almost all costs. But we do see, I think Jesus does here affirm and in the other accounts that sometimes it is it is a um, unfortunate and sad um, reality. Kevin DeYoung gives these seven principles in his sermon on this text. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read these because I think it'll summarize. There's so much more nuance here, and I want to be very careful because this hits very close to home for many people. And, uh, and it's not always easy to be able to discern the particulars. It always, there's always a particular case going on. So a hard and fast, I think, can sometimes be weaponized in ways that's unhelpful one way or the other. But here's what he says. Here's just seven principles. I think these are helpful. I'll just say them. I'll just read them. And uh, we'll let it sit there. And if they raise further questions, I'd be happy to discuss further with you. But here it is. Number one, marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman. And God's intention is for marriage to last for a lifetime. Number two, divorce is not always sinful. Number three, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Number four, divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. 
Number five, when the divorce is not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. I think Jesus affirms that. Number six, in situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is also permissible. And number seven, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think that principle. And just know that Jesus is tremendously gracious in all of this. If you think of John 4, where the, man, where the woman, he meets the woman at the well and she's had five husbands. He's so gracious to call that out. She's embarrassed by it, so he goes right into the heart of her sin and her brokenness and the ways that she's been used. But then he redeems her. He gives her living water, and she's then a witness. So there's both this grace and this truth. And in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, he protects her from those who would want to shun her and even kill her. And then he says, go and sin no more, right? So God has tremendous compassion for those. So while holding up a high view of marriage, holding up a high view of God's forgiveness and grace, in all cases, when we come to him. Lastly, we take up our cross by receiving the kingdom like children, unhindered and blessed. Unhindered and blessed. Look at verse chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. It says, They, meaning the crowd, were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and, disciples, and the disciples rebuked them. Man, these guys are so dense, right? <laughs> because he has used, he's used children as a metaphor of like, you should learn from these children. You're like children. And then when an opportunity comes up to receive children into the presence of Jesus, they rebuke people bringing them. Jesus doesn't have time for kids. He's got important adult stuff to do. And Jesus gets very indignant. All this speaking of children, all these little ones, be careful, don't lead the little ones astray. The disciples still don't get it. They still are blind. They're still blind. Spiritual blindness is still covering them. They don't get that Jesus' kingdom is for the vulnerable, for the outsider, for the one who isn't worthy of it. Those are the only way you can come to Jesus' kingdom. We see that Jesus always has time for children. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He's angry. Jesus was very angry that his disciples, his representatives, would have people who want to bring their children to him, and he's, they're being hindered. Here's what he says. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. One commentator said the irony is that they see themselves as protecting Jesus, preventing distracting nobodies from monopolizing his time. Yet by rejecting children, they are in fact rejecting him and failing to comprehend the nature and power of the gospel. Jesus always has time for children. In fact, that's the only kind of people he has time for is those who are willing to come to him. Weak, needy, faithful like children. And Jesus calls us to receive the kingdom like children. Verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Commentator says the disciples have the opportunity to receive little children and they reject it. But Jesus lives up to his previous exhortation in Mark chapter 9, verses 36 and 37 by receiving and blessing them. He also goes on to say, To use this as a proof text, especially for infant baptism, is to go beyond its original focus. Some have used this text to go, we should baptize. There there doesn't seem to be any sort of baptism within the context here. It's just commentator after commentator after commentator (laughs) said that. This is not about baptism. This is not about baptism. This is not about baptism. And so just again and again, the point here is that the disciples are like children and they must come to him. And the fact that the disciples think that 
Jesus doesn't have time for children or that children are somehow unworthy of Jesus, Jesus flips it on his head. Is like, this is the only way to come to me is weak like a child. One commentator says, a child trusts adults. He has confidence in them. He receives from them what they offer. So the disciple is to trust God and receive the kingdom. I think of, I think of Nora when I go to Watiki. She just loves to stand up on the side of the pool, the five-foot pool, and I'm standing there, and she lifts her hands up, she gets a big smile on her face, and then she just flies off the side of the pool because she knows I'll catch her, right? She knows I'll catch her. Like, that's, she has, that water could kill her, right? I mean, she would die very fast in that water, but she has no fear of that because of who she is jumping to. And that's sort of the confidence She's like, this is how I want you to come to me. You follow me. You take up your cross and you follow me. You jump in the pool. You jump into the deadly pool of following Jesus and trust me because I will walk with you. I will carry you. I will be sufficient. When we get older and we grow up, we begin to try to manage our own safety and security in ways that actually go against our faith a little bit. So there's something about the trust and the neediness of children that reminds us of where we really are with God. We're not as in control as we think we are. And actually our own kind of self-preservation, our own self-management, our own desire to make things happen on our own works against our own faith. We see that in the disciples. They're trying to manage Jesus' kingdom and keep those that would be a waste of his time away from Jesus. And Jesus is like, I only have room for people who come to me like children, who come to me needy and needing my help. That glorifies me, that honors me. That is how you enter the kingdom is to receive it like little children, and then he blesses them. He blesses them and blesses that sweet gesture of these parents and these kids to come to Jesus in all the simplicity of going, would you just just come to Jesus? Just come to Jesus like a child, and he will have you. So let me close with this. Here's the right response, I think, to this message. There's many here. We could go much deeper in many places here. But here's maybe just three. First, deal seriously with your sin, lest you be thrown into hell. I have no other way of softening Jesus' words than to just call you to that right now. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that is not right before God, would you repent of that sin and turn to Christ? Whatever it takes to get rid of this and to have life, do it. Secondly, behold and protect God's created design for marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It was God's created order from the very beginning. Let us, let us behold the beauty of marriage. Let us in our own marriages live up to that. Let's not look for escape clauses. Let's look to try to draw out um, all that God designed for that. And let's have incredible grace and kindness for those whose marriages didn't go as God designed. God can still redeem and protect through Christ. Number three, come to Jesus like a vulnerable child and bring some others with you. Don't get in the way of little children, of of people, vulnerable people coming to to Jesus, coming to our church, coming and hearing the gospel, and you come in that spirit too. So where are you? Do do you believe what Jesus believed? Like to follow him, to take up our cross and follow him means that we have to reject our ideas of things and take his ideas, right? So what Jesus believes about hell, taking up our cross and following him means that we've got to embrace that too. Jesus' designs for marriage and his intentions for that, that has to be ours now. We don't get to redefine that. When we call Jesus as Lord and we follow him, we take his perspective, we follow his teaching, we believe what he says. Will you conform yourself to his word by amputating what needs to be amputating, amputated 
and coming as a humble child. He will have you. He will bless you. He will forgive you. He will take you into his arms and he will bless you if you will come to him. Let's bow our heads and let's just take a moment and respond to this sermon in our own hearts. Just you and God, just a moment of silence. God, is there anything that needs to be cut off from me? Is there anyone that I am leading astray by my behavior, by the things that I say? Am I hindering anyone from coming to you? God, do I love and cherish marriage for what it's intended to be? Do I love those who maybe have been injured by its abuses? Whatever it is, you take a moment and just respond. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you and to respond to him. Maybe you've not yet put your faith and trust in Christ. You've not turned from your sin and, and, and trusted in him. You could do that right now too. Let me just give you a moment and then I'll close this in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these teachings of Jesus, these experiences. And God, we pray that you would help us uh, to know how to relate to them. God, I pray that you would reveal whatever sin is in our lives that needs to be amputated. May we be willing to do it, to turn from it, to put it to death. I pray, God, that we would ask for help and that we would be quick to offer help when a brother or sister is caught in sin and needs help, I pray, God, that we would be quick to help. God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your design in, in, in our culture that wants to redefine marriage in a hundred different ways. God, I pray that we would hold fast to the Bible's teaching of one man, one woman for life. And God, I pray that we would guard and protect that. I pray that young people would enter marriage, desire marriage, and enter it very carefully with great wisdom uh, from the church, from godly people. Pray that those of us who are married would tend well to them, that they might be all that you intend them to be. And I pray, God, I thank you for your grace uh, to those whose marriages did not work out for one reason for another or another because of their fault or maybe because of no fault of their own. We thank you that Jesus receives and forgives and restores and is the husband, is the father, is the one who can make people new. And, uh, and God, we pray that you would help us to come to you like children, to just have just a, a reckless faith uh, in some ways, just, a, just a, a complete trust in you that we would do uh, very bold things. And we thank you that you receive us with gentleness and, and bless us. So God, I pray that we would come and enter your kingdom like children. Thank you for my friends here and for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.